You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Yoga Inspiration Show. I'm here with Giovanna Heyman, who I'm super excited to have as my guest today. Hi, Giovanna. How's it going? Hi, Kino. Good. How are you? I'm pretty good. And I'm excited about uh, having you as a guest and to introduce you to all of the listeners. So you're a really inspirational teacher and leader in the yoga community and, and world to me. So I would love if you could introduce yourself to everyone just so they know how you came into the practice and what your kind of teaching mission is really all about. Okay. That's so sweet of you to say. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I think I'm most known for accessible yoga, and that really started with my um, AIDS activism from in the late '80s and 1990s. Um, you know, I was I was really involved with AIDS activism, and actually, I was even a reporter at that time um, for an AIDS newsletter, and and I was using yoga on my own just for my own self care. In fact, my grandma had taught me yoga when I was a little kid. But then I just got more interested in the practice, and I started to realize that I could share yoga with my community. And so I started teaching classes for people with HIV and AIDS in San Francisco in 1995. And, and then accessible yoga really grew out of that, you know, just trying to encourage my students to go deeper, to take teacher training and become teachers themselves. And eventually we formed a nonprofit um, and I offer trainings and stuff. And um, that was my first book, Accessible Yoga, which is really all about adapting the practice to anyone. And really trying to share the fullness of yoga with people who don't think they can do it. I mean, I'd say that's really my mission is just showing, showing people that yoga is for everyone, truly, and, and that the heart of yoga is completely universal and completely accessible to us. Is that enough? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I mean, I think that it's a really inspiring story. And I want to go a little bit deeper into what you describe in your new book as the kind of tension between your yoga practice and your activism. And you wrote that you feel like you finally reconciled that kind of tension and mm. that you found the root of both, which you, which you wrote about as love and compassion. So what's the journey to reconcile and why was there a tension between yoga and activism in the first place? Well, I think that's pretty on the surface level. You know, people think of yoga as a completely inward practice. And then you think of activism as so outward and so concerned with politics and what's going on in the external world. And generally, those, those seem like opposites, you know, to me, like on the surface. But I think with more reflection, you can see that yoga is not only internal, it's also the way you act in the world, right? I mean, through service and karma yoga, we see that yoga is the way that you take your practice into your life. And so for me, I, I start, I see now that my service has, was activism back then, that my activism, even though I was angry and screaming and marching and protesting, getting arrested and all that, that it really came out of love and care for my community and my, my friends and boyfriends. And I mean, literally like my whole community was dying around me. I mean, it's hard to describe like for people that are younger, I think, I guess you people have now have been through COVID. So we have a sense of what the uh, uh, epidemic is like, but 
During those early years of AIDS, it was just devastating because we weren't getting any attention. It was like, it was almost like COVID was going on and no one was talking about it. You know, that's how it felt. It was like people were dying all around me and getting sick. And some people even said we deserved it. Like, oh, gay men deserve to die. You know, like that was your lifestyle choice and all this stuff. So it was a different time and place, you know, back then. And, and in a way, my speaking up was just an effort to bring attention to like, help, like help us and help our, my friends who are sick and dying, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely understand the anger and I understand the need to give voice to the loss and the injustice in that situation. And I think that you wrote about in, in your, in your new book about how that sometimes in the yoga world, there can, there can be a tension between that, between expressing anger and that, that in some ways, I think you wrote that it seems to deviate from some of what Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras talks about as nirodhas, the stillness of the mind. And maybe that's the uh, kind of tension that, that, that you've gone, to, gone through reconciling. So has that reconciliation been within you? Um, how, is there, is there, have, have, what have you done to kind of process that, that anger of the early activism? And does that fire still live in you? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think it's exactly what you said about uh, Patanjali's teachings. And I would bring up another one, which is non-attachment and the idea that we don't, you know, we don't base our happiness on external things, that happiness arises from within us. And so like, in a way, activism seems like an effort to change the external world to make it fit the way we want it to be. But like I said in the book, I think the reconciliation came from understanding that it was coming out of a place of care and love for people. And, and I think that's what service is about. I actually think that that's what yoga is about, really. But if you get to the heart of the teachings, to me, it's really about connecting them with love in myself and then seeing and feeling that within other people and then acting accordingly. You know, I think the action is essential. And in the book, I talk a lot about the Gita. Like, I, I, I definitely, I think... In my early years, I tended to study the sutras more, but like I've moved more towards the Gita these days. And just, you know, in, in the, the Gita is more instructional in terms of how to live, you know, how to be in the world. I mean, mm-hmm. how to practice what we're, yeah, you know what I mean? Practice what we're preaching. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, people are, are who start off studying yoga get interested in the philosophy. And it seems that these days, you know, the yoga sutras are the place to start. Um, for many people, however, my teacher, uh, Patabi Joyce in India, when I asked him, you know, what, what scripture should I start with? Can I read the yoga sutras? He laughed at me and he said, you want to read the yoga sutras? You're not understanding. Do you take Bhagavad Gita? This is good for you. This is good yeah. tech, you know, good to live the life. So, you know, I, if people don't realize that the sutras are really meant for a, a kind of very specific audience, you know, they're meant for an ascetic's path. They're meant for, you know, renunciate's path, which is, which isn't the path of most Western, you know, contemporary yoga students. Um, And the Gita is kind of, you know, spoken towards householders, people who are trying to, you know, live their yoga uh, in their life. So, yeah. I I appreciate you saying that because that's exactly what I, I, too and it's it's not that there's incredible there are incredible teachings in the sutras that i think we can apply but it's it's not really designed for us i don't think if, you know those of us that have families and live in the world and i just i was just on facebook earlier today which is probably a mistake but um <laughs> in a big teachers group there's this argument going on about this about or about the idea of 
social justice and yoga. And that, oh, that's not yoga. And then someone said, no, to me, yoga is asana pranayama meditation. That's my practice and proudly. And they were like really dissing the idea that yoga is about engagement in the world. And I just think it's, I mean, I think people can define it however they want. Like, that's okay. But uh, like, I don't get too caught up in other people's ideas of what yoga is, but I would just say that, you know, for me, it's not simply just the internal practices. There is that other level. And so I, yeah, if you look at the Gita and even at the sutras, I think you see that there's still something about connection, you know, beyond it's getting beyond that egotistical self, right? And then if you do that, you automatically care for others. It's just natural process that would happen, you know. There's a there's a lot there. So I mean, if we take a look in you know in the sutras, then where where Karuna, the compassion comes up. It's like right. it's, it's this direction to create you know yogi advanicha, the the yogi's mind is you know Patanjali says cultivate compassion for the suffering. Okay. So those so this is his literal direction for how to exist in the world. So identify who's suffering and then generate compassion and compassion and, and compassion we can dissect and you know it's often described as empathy plus action. So you know yeah. then even just that one sutra can open up the whole window towards how are you going to exist and then and then you know the teachers that say well, or anybody that says, you know, I just do asana, pranayama, bandha, mudra, whatever like this, then, well, for, we have to ask, well, for what purpose? Why are you doing this asana, pranayama, bandha, mudra? You know, right. what are you going to perfect that? Yeah, for what purpose? Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, I, I want to say, yeah, that, that sutra, you said, uh, book one, sutra 33, you mentioned, is the one that I really break down a lot in, in the book, in my new book, because I really want to get to that. Like, what does Patanjali say? You know, and I that's even the subtitle of my book is building a practice of courage and compassion. And I use that word on purpose because I think, I think that's his like, yeah, that's one way into understanding Patanjali in that way and the way he wants us to relate to the world. But I love what you just mentioned around what is your purpose? Because um, I also talk about that in the book and the fact that there, there was some really interesting research on mindfulness that um, came out of, I think it's the University of Buffalo that examined whether mindfulness makes you more or less self-centered. And what it showed is that for people who were self-centered before they started, it actually made them more self-centered. And people that weren't self-centered, it made them less. So it depended on what was already happening in their mind. And I think that's such an interesting thing for us as yoga, yoga practitioners to, to consider, is that the practice gives you all this energy and this power, and that whatever is in your mind is going to be exaggerated through the practice. And so you have to be very, very careful about that. And that's why to me, and, and something my teacher really focused on is service. But if you, if you don't have a service focus, then actually you might be, it might be counterproductive, right? Cause you might be building up your own ego, which is actually not helping you in the end. Right. Mm. Yeah. What a good point. You know, you see the power that having that you know, yoga body brings up in people, you know, suddenly they can, you feel so good to do the physical practice, you know, you know, you're suddenly, you're doing some backbending and some movement, all the juices are flowing in the body. And then suddenly you feel like you're a super person and, yeah. you know, like you're a superhero. And, and then, yeah, if there's not some elements of check to the ego, I've seen it in students, I've experienced it myself, where you get into this kind of high where, you know, it begins to be this kind of ego maniacal, trip on some, you know, false delusion of enlightenment. And if you don't have someone to, you know, knock you off your horse or break your false bubble of, you know, fake enlightenment, then you can end up on some really, really dangerous uh, sort of rides of 
disillusionment and right. the community I think is important in that instance. Um, family, I think is very important in that instance. My husband is the first one to <laughs> crack my bubble. Um, you know? yeah. My husband too. I can say, you'd be happy to hear me say that. <laughs> That's what husbands are for. I have one you know, around, keep me grounded. But uh, well, actually it's funny because I think that this, this part of this book has been kind of going back through my life and and I, I met him right at the same time that I was getting way into yoga and and I think if I hadn't met him I probably would have become a monk actually and I would have gone down that path because mm. I was just like completely dedicated to yoga but he really kept me from that and so he's shown me like like you said I mean what you just said is so important that having a person in your life and it doesn't have to be a partner it could be a, fam a family member or a friend someone just to like keep you grounded or to keep it honest or a therapist, right? It could be a therapist, mm -hmm. um, but just someone to keep you honest. I think that's really, really important in our practice. But also you mentioned the word community. And I would say in the past, I think it would have been the role of a guru to keep you on the ground and not let you get away with all those things. Right. But these days, like who has the guru? Like, it just doesn't even really happen as much. I know there's probably some out there, but it's like, we're, we're practicing in such a different world. And we've got to find another way. And so for me, it's, I think the word community is essential that we actually care for each other. And so like, if you get all that energy and you start to get kind of in your head, if you remember that you're there to care for each other, like if there's some dedication, I think dedication is an important word. If you can find mm -hmm. a way to dedicate your practice, then it'll, I think, save you from that. Mm -hmm. For me, it's almost like at the end of my practice, I always try and dedicate it to something other than myself. Because it, otherwise, it's yeah, it's like I might, it, it's counterproductive, actually. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. This is the traditional ending to, you know, Buddhist meditation where, you know, you end with metta practice, you end with the cultivating the vibration of loving kindness, you know, towards yourself and towards other beings for the benefit of the world. So, and this is also our, in Ashtanga Yoga, our traditional closing prayer. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people gloss over this part. You know, yeah. a lot of people, to just finish the practice and go on. And I, sometimes when I teach metta, there some people have very strong resistance to it. They, they, they feel like they can't send love to the world. They can't dedicate the merits of their practice for the benefit of other beings. Or sadly, there are many people who don't feel that they're worthy of love themselves. You know, and then that kind of brings back to the, the full circle of why we're getting on the mat, you know, why we're practicing, yeah. you know, why, why these practices are good for us. I, I want to share a quote that I teased out that I think is really useful from, from your new book. And maybe we should, and, and, and we should, of course, encourage everyone to read it. It's really wonderful. Uh, so this quote is uh, from you. We can't pick apart, we can't pick yoga apart and only use the physical practices without understanding their meaning and context. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is something that, is just really useful for everyone in the contemporary yoga world to, 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 to read, to think about. And there's so much in there, even though it seems like just a simple sentence. So first, if we unpack it, you can see that yoga is primarily presented in the Western world as a physical practice. Many people's introduction to yoga comes from, I want to learn to do this asana. This yoga pose looks cool. And then the meaning and context is almost stripped away, whether the Sanskrit words for the asanas or the Sanskrit mantras that go along with some practices are removed, whether some of the more um, kind of devotional aspects of the practice are removed. So it turns into kind of making shapes and bending and twisting. And mm -hmm. I love that this is the, the this very crucial um, kind of 
pivotal point that you put front and center in your book. So I guess my question with that is what advice do you have for people that are newer in the yoga world or teachers of yoga, particularly yoga in, you know, the North America and Europe and the Western centered, Western centric countries uh, that are practicing and teaching yoga? How can they, you know, really integrate the deeper meaning and context of yoga in their practice and their teaching? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think part of it is from my work that I mentioned earlier of making yoga accessible is that I see very clearly that, you know, I mentioned in the opening, like yoga is for everyone. And, and when I say that, I'm, I'm serious. And it's not just the idea that I can adapt a pose or modify a practice to fit a different body, but actually understanding that yoga is a, these are universal spiritual teachings that transcend this limited life of this body and mind that I have. And it's, I think at its core, yoga to me is about connecting with a part of me that's eternal, that's unchanging, and that isn't going to die. And while, you know, but this body and mind is going to die. And so I think the more we get stuck in our, our attachment to the body and the mind, I think it limits our, the potential of what the practice can share with us and what can, it can show us. And I don't think it's really aligned with the heart of what yoga is to get beyond the body and mind. So my understanding of the teachings is we're using the body, we're using asana to go beyond, to get to more subtle layers so that we can work with you know, energy and the breath and, and then with the mind and then work with the mind to go beyond that level and actually connect with deeper parts of ourselves. And so it's not that asana is bad, asana is essential, but it's almost, it's really easy to get stuck there, I think, and not understand that it's a tool for further exploration. And, and I'll give you one more example, which I think helps some, some of my students is when I go to adapt a practice in my, like when I'm teaching yoga for people with disabilities, for example, I think the mistake that most people make is that they simplify the physical practice to make it look or seem more physical, more physically easy to do. But I actually would say the way to adapt practice is often to go to the more subtle la- layer to like go beyond the physical. And to look at what's happening with the energy body or the breath or with the mind. And in that way, you can take anyone a little bit deeper into the practice. And it also shows that if you can't do a physical movement because of a mobility issue, it doesn't mean that you can't actually have a very deep yogic experience at the same time as anyone else. And I mean, it kind of equalizes the playing field by shifting the focus to re- away from performance and ability and strength to something that's more, I think, available to all of us. And it also, and not just disability, I also think, think about aging a lot, you know, and like what happens as you get older, you know, and I think it's for all of us to consider like, what, what is it like for me? Like when I'm 80 or 90, my, my, like I said, my grandmother taught, taught me yoga and she practiced into her eighties and I watched it stop. I watched her, you know, go away from a daily practice because she couldn't do it anymore. But knowing that she was getting wiser and deeper into herself during those, you know, last years kind of helped. She was like my first teacher. So it's like, I saw right away, yoga is not about the body. You know, that's what she wouldn't talk about her poses, not being able to do them. She would talk about her life and, and her, her love for things. And you know what I'm saying? It, it, it was beyond the physical. And so I, I guess the last thing I'll say about it is I think yoga is actually preparing us for death and that journey of getting sick, getting older and dying, which is there for all of us. 
And I think that if we don't allow it to take us there, we're really limiting what we can learn from the practice. When you can think about we have Shavasana in every class, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, the quote from the Gita that you used in your book, which I'll just read for everyone now, you know, you were never born, you will never die, you have never changed, you can never change, unborn, eternal, immutable, immemorial, you do not die when the body dies. Exactly. Right. That's the message of the Gita. That's actually the opening. That's where Krishna is trying to teach Arjuna that you're the, the... you're thinking about the wrong thing here. You know, you're focused so much on what you're going to be doing in this body, but you're not focusing on your spiritual life. And I think that's what yoga is for, you know, it's spirituality. Mm -hmm. It's almost a taboo subject to talk about, you know, death and dying. And I really like that you brought up that maybe the whole purpose of our spiritual practice is to face that pivotal moment. This is a common theme in the spiritual traditions and the wisdom traditions of the East, but it almost feels like, in the West, we have this kind of fear of death and we have this elevation of eternal youthfulness and this kind of idolization of the, yeah. you know, the bud of life rather than, if the, you know, in the, in the metaphor of yeah. the flower, not the, not the butt, but the bud <laughs> of life, yeah. right? Yeah. So that, that kind of, you know, nascent uh, period of our, of our being rather than this respect for the, la- the latter years and, the, and this sort of reverence of elders that comes from maybe different cultures. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, uh, you have a chapter in your book that really talks about the grief that you experienced after the loss of your mom. And I connected with that because the loss of my father really uh, changed my world. Um, and you, I, I really, really connected with, you described it as, you know, a, a period of change that kind of felt like falling off a cliff. And, you know, um, I I never contemplated, you know, death more and then during that that period. And I felt that the the tools of the practice uh, helped me deal with the grief, but it wasn't everything. And I think you also talked about that the tools of the practice were useful, but it wasn't everything. What else did you turn to to help you kind of process the grief at that period? Yeah, I mean... I know I just said this whole little, I gave this whole little talk about yoga is about learning how to die and everything and (laughs) being comfortable with death, but I have a lot to learn. You know, I'll just say that I'm not saying that I know or that I'm comfortable with it and my own death or those who I care about. And so I think I had a lot of death in my life when I was young around, you know, with people with AIDS, I lost at least 20 people who were close to me, including my best friend who died in 1995. And, and then I realized that when my mom died, it was almost like, I don't want to say PTSD, but it was like, I was kind of reliving a lot of that grief that I had gone through um, when I was in my twenties. And so losing so many people and, and she was so close to me and such a, you know, I mean, you know, she's my mother and not everyone has a positive relationship with their mother, but I did. And she was really incredible source for me of wisdom and caring and love. And so I really fell apart actually. And I, I, I think in the book, I talk about how it led to an anxiety attack. And I, I really, I ended up in the hospital and I thought I was having a heart attack and the doctors, they did all these tests on me. And then they came to me and they told me you're having an anxiety attack. And I laughed at them and I said, I'm a yoga teacher. How can I be? <laughs> you know, it just shows like the, the kind of hubris and the, you know, the, the kind of lack of, of understanding that I had, that I had this identity as a yoga teacher. And even though I've been doing these practices for so long, I had so much to learn. I still do. I have so much to learn. It's just like never ending. And I'm still human. I'm like, you know, I don't know. I just, 
I had learned to work with my nervous system in some level, right, through the practice, but I obviously hadn't dealt with my emotions. And um, I had to start over. And that's what I talk about in the book a lot. I, I really had to take my practice back to like beginning. I, I, had a, I had a really hard time doing any pranayama, doing any meditations, any silent meditation. It was like so hard because with anxiety, those of you who have, I mean, I've had anxiety before, but I never had like a major attack like that. And anyone who has anxiety, it's just, it's really hard to get your mind quiet. And like the more attention you put on it, sometimes the worse it is. So with anxiety, it's often helpful to distract yourself and like do more asana. So actually that's what I ended up doing. Ironically, after this whole talk, <laughs> I ended up doing more asana, a stronger practice, doing other kinds of exercise. Um, I just tried to get into my body again. Mm-hmm. And that, that's been the most helpful thing, to be honest. I had to start over. And I think our body is a good place to start. I mean, it's not for everyone, but I do think that that's where we go. That's why asana is so great. And um, that's why yoga works so well, right? It works. But sometimes it's not a straight line. Let's just say that. <laughs> not for me. Not for me either. No. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting about the, the, the sort of the inability of the sitting practice and the more silent practice to give you comfort during that period. Yeah. I've been, you know, I've been sitting for more than 20 years and through yeah. during one of the only time that I took a break from sitting was, was during a, a period where I had a, a resurgence of, 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 of depression and I just couldn't face sitting and it was, it was strangely probably the thing that would have helped me the most, but I just couldn't face it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even realize that I had stopped until I went and spoke with someone. And then it kind of came up in this conversation where I was talking with my therapist. And then I sort of realized, oh, there was this thing I used to do in addition to the asana practice. And I had the hubris like you did, where I felt like I can't be depressed. I'm a yoga teacher. My life is fabulous. I put my leg behind the head at five in the morning, you know, (laughs) but I'm depressed. This is what I have to be depressed about, you know? And, and then, you know, then I, I, I had to start from scratch all over again. I used to have a really like when I, prior to that period of depression, I would sit for hours and then I started back with five minutes and it was really, really humbling, but also helped me really understand how how necessary it is to yeah. make the practice the practice of meditation and mindfulness accessible because you know if this is if people are really suffering sometimes yeah. the idea of sitting silently and not changing your position for an hour is you know a form of torture yeah <laughs> and okay. not helpful no yeah I, I thanks for saying that i mean i totally relate that's exactly how i felt and i I think of, like I said, I think of asana really as kind of the more beginning level. And I, it's not really, it's not like that. It's not like beginning and advanced, but I would just say that to me, I think of the more subtle as the more advanced. And so mm-hmm. just, I think that helps again around accessibility to stop thinking of like more physically advanced as more advanced yoga, that it's really the more subtle you can be in your practice that mm-hmm. makes it more advanced. And that means working with your mind or working with your breath. And you know, like I said, it, it's not a straight line. Like for me, I, I used to be able to sit for hours as well. And um, it all changed and all changed for sure. But, you know, I'm finding my way back. And also the other piece that came out of that for me was examining what was happening in the meditations because I noticed that I was very self-critical. And so part of what I talk about in the book is like trying to let go of this idea of self of control as the focus. And I think, you know, we always translate um, 
Patanjali's, you know, second sutra is control of the mind. Mm -hmm. I think that leads to like a lot of effort to discipline the mind. And I think I I tend to be very self-critical anyway. And so like, that's a dangerous road for me to go down. Mm -hmm. And so I've tried to kind of rethink the language that I use for myself and what the process is internally regarding my meditation practice. And I'm, I'm trying to, I try to, what I'm really trying to do is to be more um, conscious of the inner dialogue mm-hmm. and to look at what is my relationship with myself. I talk a lot in the book about that around like who's talking in your mind, you know, and who's listening and that we have, we have an internal voice that's usually going all the time. Right. But I think that we also have the observer, like the witness or the true self that's there kind of behind everything, just observing, watching. We also have other voices maybe that are critical, right? But I think that neutral voice is actually a loving presence, right? That's, to me, that's like my true self. It's just always there, present, kind of observing everything, everything that's happening in my life. Like even, even if I think back to like my childhood and when I was younger and then more recent things, like what I think about what part of me has been the same and what part of me has changed. And like the more I can connect to the part that stayed the same, there's like this certain essence of me. And I think that's what I'm trying to connect with in my practice. So I'm trying to be more conscious in my practice that I'm not as self-critical and judgmental and also accepting failure. I talk about that a lot in the book, like this idea that like that time, you know, when I had my nervous, not nervous breakdown, my anxiety attack, um, that it wasn't a failure, you know, that it's actually the source of great learning. And that all the things I think of as failures are actually opportunities to learn about myself. And I know that most of the things I've learned in life have come through struggle and challenge. And so I, and yet when a new one comes every time, I think, oh, you know, I have to deal with this again. Instead of thinking, oh, okay, wait, here's another opportunity, yeah. right, to learn. It's often in retrospect that we can see that we've yeah. learned. In the moment, it's like, you know, why has God forsaken me? And then, and then yeah. afterwards, we realize, oh, I was being guided into this pivotal learning. So yeah. there's, I think your second chapter begins with this uh, definition of, of, of a dialectic. And I found that very interesting to bring in this concept of dialectical, you know, a, a, a discussion and philosophy. And yeah. for those people unfamiliar with that, it's sort of the notion of, of seemingly opposing truths. And when these are presented either through inquiry or investigation and in what you just talked about, I find I found, you know, you were relying on this dichotomy that Patanjali talks about between Purusha and Prakriti. Yeah, okay. you know, and and I, I think that's really I, I love the way that you bring these kind of esoteric concepts into tangible ways for people to relate as you were talking about the voice in the mind versus the constant watching sort of observer that's always there. So um in relation to this kind of tension between Purusha and Prakriti, or in in this in this way that we see our eternal self and our sort of manifest self. And what are some of the windows that you've had into Purusha? And how would you, how would you define Purusha? Mm, that's a great question. I, first, I just want to say that dialectical teachings come to me from Western psychology and DBT, which is dialectical behavior therapy, 
which was created by an incredible woman named Marsha Linehan. And she has a new autobiography out, which I recommend for people to read. It came out last year, but she shares her journey as someone really struggling with mental health issues. And also she was a Zen master or is a Zen master. And so she really integrated Western psychology and Zen in this amazing treatment, which is focused on skills rather than on talk therapy. And it's used by people with the most challenging psychological issues, like um, teens who are suicidal, people with borderline personality disorder. These are the patients that she's worked with the most and who benefit the most from this treatment. And I find that really interesting because I think we have not, well, I know yoga therapy exists. I'm a yoga therapist and I worked with a lot of yoga therapists, but I feel like most yoga therapists kind of miss this opportunity, which is like connecting people with the truth that they have within them, that they are fine, you know, with the, the, the Purusha, like you said, um, that exists within us. And I feel like that's the benefit of the practice and it can be very therapeutic and healing for all of us. And in fact, that's what I think we're here for, right? That's what not only yoga practice, but that's what life to me is about is trying to understand why I'm here and who am I really? Um, and then to answer your question, I would just say, I mean, that example I gave is probably the most easily relatable one, just like trying to notice who, who am I and what part of me has existed over time? Because I think that's something we can easily relate to when you look back over your lifetime. But I would say there's more than that. And to me, it has to do with a feeling of love that I have for people who are very close to me, especially like my dog <laughs> or like things that are easy to love. Like not, it's, it's harder when it's like complex relationships, like, you know, like my teenage children or my husband or something. But the feeling I get when I'm with um, like an animal that I can just love unconditionally or like when my kids were infants, I, you know, I, I, my husband and I adopted our two kids and I was a stay-at-home dad and I got to take care of them from like when they were one day old. And that was unusual, I think, for a man to get that experience of like raising a baby from that age. And it blew my mind. Like I had no idea what parenting was really like ahead of that. I didn't, I'm still learning about parenting, but it demands this complete dedication and love to this being that you have to put yourself aside to be able to be there for them, being up all night, whenever they need you, where they cry, you know, all constantly, whatever you, you, you can't shower, you can't eat, you can't do all these things. Like you're there to serve them. And it just, it kind of opened my mind and my heart to like, oh wait, this is what unconditional love really is. This is where, this is where service arises from. When I can get that feeling of, oh wow, this is really love. It's not, it's not transactional. It's not because I want something back. It's because I want to be in your presence. I want to, I want to care for you because I really do love you. And it, and that feeling is in me, if that makes sense. That that's my sense of what Purusha is, that feeling in me of unconditional love. I don't know if that helped. Mm, I, I love that. I think I can really definitely connect with that. And what a beautiful description of being a parent. You know, that's so so beautiful. I love that. Yeah, it's challenging. Yes. Yeah. And I can also say I, I've done some um, DVT, so you don't oh, need to oh, be, cool. it also helps, you, you don't know, you don't to need borderline. to be, okay. I don't know, maybe I've been borderline, I'm not maybe. sure, but, you know, but, but it, it can be helpful for everyone. And and it, I didn't know this about the founder, 
But when I was learning the sort of some of the skills from DBT, the best way I could describe it was applied mindfulness. And I felt like this was really, really helpful because I had all these tools and skills that I learned from mindfulness practice and yoga practice. And then here was this technique to actually give me the skill set to apply it in real life situations where I, I was trying to figure it out but it was hard to bridge that gap. So I found it really, really useful and I can yeah. just recommend it. To but anyone. don't you also, didn't you also find, and maybe I'm just projecting, but I also found that like when I was studying DBT, that a lot of it really related to yoga. Like I could see the yoga teachings there and I thought, well, why, why don't I sh- practice them that way or sh- teach them that way? You know what I mean? So like in a way, to be honest, this book is an effort to do that. Like I really am trying to present some of the most essential teachings in a way that is use that's useful and practical. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes I think yoga philosophy seems very um, complex and, and it is, and it can be complicated. And I'm, I want to also say that this is very much my interpretation. I'm not, I'm not a scholar or whatever. I'm just me. And I'm just trying to share like my experience, what's worked for me, what I've found through my journey. Um, which is, I think that, I think you probably do the same. I bet you, I know you know the teachings really well, and I'm sure you use them in ways that you probably don't even realize, like unconsciously, they probably arise for you. And you think, oh, this is that an opportunity to do that or this, you know? I hope so. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, they definitely, the more you study anything, the more it just gets into your DNA and your, you know, the, it infuses everything you do and changes the way you think about things, you know? Okay. Um, so your teacher was Swami Satyadananda, who I think is extremely inspirational in, in some level. The, in, the whole institute, and I've, I've, I, I never met him, but I've read, you know, I've read his Yoga Sutras uh, translation and um, studied with a few of his, uh, like, I don't know, disciples or people that had studied with him. And you had mentioned a, a sort of rigid definition of the word Nirodha is control. And one of the definitions that I heard of, of from Nirodha came from a student of Swami Satyadananda. And he described it as, he said that, he said he never liked the word control and that his teacher never described it like that. And that another way to think of Nirodaha was like the opposite of the Tasmanian devil. So this image of just this kind of tornado of destruction. But he said, imagine if you could harness that power, but direct it inward. And then he said, that's Nirodaha. And I felt like, wow, this is beautiful because so many other translations to say control restraint and that doesn't seem to capture the essence of what we're actually doing in the yoga practice like we're not just trying to rigidly control everything but we're trying to look so deeply inward so that all that stuff in the surface the tornadoes of destruction well then they just naturally start to dissipate yeah i love that i think i think that actually is true of all the teachings that when we often over oversimplify and i hope i'm not doing that as well in my in my book and my teaching but we oversimplify and we think oh it's this one thing but actually sometimes it, we need to step back and think wait how does this relate to the ultimate overall goal and this idea of connecting with the self like that it needs to constantly be in context i, I would say because i would think of like brahmacharya in the same way like you could simplify brahmacharya but really you could also think of it as like like kind of that same thing you just said, rather than sending our energy outward, we focus it on our practice and ourself. Mm-hmm. Like that's different than saying it's, it's about not having sex or whatever. So yeah. like controlling the sex energy or something. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's true of almost all the teachings, but it's like, we need to keep that context in mind. And it's hard to know because it's ancient, right? 
but I did feel lucky that, I mean, my teacher, um, he was amazing. I, I mean, I did get to study with him for, in person for many, many years and with all of his senior disciples. And, um, you know, he had an amazing way of simplifying yoga philosophy. I mean, he did this beautiful translation of the Yoga Sutras and also one of the Bhagavad Gita that I think are really accessible. And, and that's, I mean, I would say that accessible yoga really came from him in a sense that he showed me that you can make the teachings accessible without dumbing them down or making it oversimplified, but you can just make it available by translating it well. And I think that's what he was doing. Um, yeah. And I, I, I do feel grateful for that for sure. Yeah. yeah and, and yet today, you know, I come from also a traditional lineage and, and yet today the kind of buzzword in our yoga world is that we're living in a post-lineage world where we have to wonder where the guru is, if there is a guru, if uh, if the role of the community will will usurp the traditional role of the guru. And also, I think a question that needs to be posed if we're living in a post-lineage world of yoga is what is the student's role in this you know, in this post-lineage yoga world. So I love, is... I love that question. First of all, I'm going to just say, I love when people ask what the student's role is. I think that's, to me, that's always the most important part. And, and we don't ask that enough. Just like in yoga classes, like I think we talk a lot about, you know, I, I train yoga teachers too. And it's always like, what does the teacher do? What does the teacher do? But what is like, what is the role of a student? What is the responsibility of a yoga student? Like, what are their, like yoga students have rights and, responsibilities too. And I think the more we could share like what that is, I think it can make for a safer community. That's a lot more effective if students really understood that role. Um, but that's, but going back to your point, I would say, yeah, it's, um, well, I'm my friend, um, Theo Wildcraft, she, she came up with that term post-lineage yoga. And she often says that it's misunderstood. She has a really interesting book about it, which is really, it's her dissertation actually. And it's very academic. She was researching a very specific thing, which is she was looking at the way that yoga teachings were being transmitted in the, she lives in the UK and she was attending these yoga festivals and she was watching how teachers would influence each other by taking each other's classes. And she actually tracked in a very scientific manner, the way that practices were being shared amongst this group of teachers. She analyzed what they were doing and how their practice would change after being around each other. Do you know what I'm saying? So she's trying to show like peer influence i guess or something mm -hmm. and so she and again i want to give her credit because she coined the phrase post-lineage yoga she's specifically talking about peer mentoring in that regard she actually said to me she said I, she's not anti-lineage at all but i do think that the phrase has a life of its own and now I, and it's uh, i mean it to say i think we are post-lineage too like separate from what theo says i do think there's been a shift in the yoga world away from lineage but I, I don't know. I just like to share that because I think, again, it's, it's a dialectic, right? It's two things that seemingly are opposed, but are not, which is that you can have lineages still like you and I both come from lineages. And yet I, you know, I've tried to free myself from some of the limitations of the lineage because I feel like within my lineage, there was abuse and yours as well. And I think that we need to rethink the way we continue on those teachings so that we don't replicate that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's what you're getting at. It's like, what is the role of the community? What is the role of the student and the teacher? And actually in my book, I talk about how the community can replace the guru on some level, but that 
the community needs to step it up. Like the community needs to look at how, yeah, like how is peer support happening among yoga teachers? There needs to be like more of that happening. If you, if you look at Theo's research, that's what she was talking about is like, how do we influence each other's work? And I don't see, I see it within some small communities, like teachers taking each other classes or like working as a collective, but I don't know. It feels like we're still very much about the individual um, rather than working in another kind of community way. Although I say that within the accessible yoga community, I see a lot of really beautiful sharing and mutual support that gives me hope. Maybe it has to happen on a smaller scale. You know, if we go into this big, larger kind of you know, industrial global scale, then you get it to see the, the, you know, people trying to compete for their spot. But, you know, I think of our community here in Miami at our, at our yoga center and our yep. teachers all practice with each other, all take each other's class are part of this mm. community where, you know, they're, they each teach. And then we, we teach each, you know, I, I go to their classes when I'm not teaching, if I'm teaching, they're in my classes okay. and, you know, um, and so maybe it's on a smaller scale that this that this influence happens. Um, yeah. And yet, within that space, there are definitive roles of the teacher that's holding space, the definitive role of the student and how, how to interact as a student. I had someone uh, that's newer to our community who asked to assist me. And she's the first time she's assisted me. And it was, you know... Um, not as fluid as those who have been a part of our community for longer. And it's interesting to think about how these different roles, like the teacher still needs to have some authority. The student still needs to let go a little bit of their preconceptions in order to learn. They still need to be teachable. Mm -hmm. And yet the old absolute surrender, this person is an immutable authority when they're in the role of the guru. Like that's, that's I think, shifted to a very, very large degree. Yeah. So, so where does a Western student fit in all of that? You know, well, I, I actually think that um, I think we can rethink it more. I, I think it's true that the teacher has a role and the student has the role, but I actually think their roles are not um, so much so different. That, or let's say it this way: I think they have equal roles. Mm -hmm. And even saying that alone shifts the hierarchy that allows for an imbalance of power that could, could lead to abuse. So I think that's why I got excited when you talked about the, the responsibility of a student, because I think that's, that's what needs to happen more is that we need to actually show students that they are equal to the teacher, whether it's just as human beings and having rights, but even in, in the classroom setting, because I would say the student has knowledge of their body and themselves that the teacher doesn't have. And I think in my teaching, a lot of what I try to do is to guide the student to find that themselves, to find their own way in and with mm -hmm. encouragement and, and, you know, through asana, through all the practices that I'm suggesting, but they're there taking it in. But I think with giving them more choice, that's what I'm saying. Like I want student to feel empowered. Agency is the word. My friend, M. Camelia, who I think you have um, mm -hmm. teaching through own stars, like they talk about this so beautifully like the, really the role of agency and power within yoga traditions. And I think um, they teach me all the time that there needs to be a shift to the student to feel like they have agency because that in a way is what yoga is about. I mean, yoga is about finding that inner power. Mm -hmm. And so we can actually 
have our teaching style, the methodology in, li- in alignment with the yoga, f- with philosophy. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. And, and I think it's even, even more basic than that on some level, which is that if the student doesn't show up and the student's not willing to do the practice, then the tradition ends, you know? So it's literally that. It, this tradition is totally dependent on students showing up and saying, I want to learn. Can you teach me? And it's this, and so it's on that fundamental level, mm. that equity of, of human beings. I think, you know, the teachers have humility. Thank your students for showing up. Without them, you're not a teacher, you know? As a, that, basic, that basic idea of that this being is here is what makes this tradition continue. Yeah. And then I, I think a little bit about the Western like study methodology. And I, I do think that Western students um, could potentially generate a little bit more reverence for the teachings, not, not, not maybe not the teacher, like we don't need the teacher to be put on the pedestal, but the teachings that these are sacred things that have been preserved for thousands of generations by people in India. And yeah. now you have access to them. Yeah. It's not even your culture. You wouldn't, right. you know, a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have access to this. You, yeah. you have this precious thing. Please interact with this with some okay. reverence and respect for the culture of origin yeah. rather than just like, you know, toss it aside and make a you know, fashionable quote out of it and slap it on the T-shirt and make oh, an industry out of it. Exactly. You know? I mean, that's cultural appropriation. Exactly. Mm-hmm. If you don't approach with reverence, then you're just simply appropriating, especially if you're using it for just selfish reasons. Um, so I, I love that for sure. And I, I've got, yeah, I, I haven't traveled as much as you, but I have traveled and taught a bit around the world and it's so different teaching in different cultures and the way that the role of the student and the teacher is so interesting. Um, but you said something that I thought was really interesting. Um, I don't know. I, I love this conversation. I think, I think looking at, um, you know, oh, I know what I was saying. You know, you talked about how if the teacher... If the student isn't there, then the teacher can't teach. And I would say more than that, what I've started to notice is that unless I have a student or someone asking me, like even you right now, like asking me something, I often don't come up with the things. Like literally, like it's a student who draws something out of me and I, that I couldn't do without them. Like I feel like it, it is a two-way relationship. Like I literally rely on my students um, to help me reflect on these teachings and to find ways of understanding them myself that work for me because I'm trying to make them work for them. Like, it's just so beneficial to me as a teacher when I get to be in that role. When I get to be in the role of teacher, I learn so much. Like, I actually would say I learn more even as a teacher than when I'm in role of student, but I have to be open to that. I have to be open to learning and also being wrong. You know, I think as a teacher, I have to be open to questioning myself. And that's where we get stuck. Because I think that the ego becomes attached to a certain way and the power that's associated with the students coming to us. And it's very, um, it's like very appealing. I mean, you easy to get caught up in that, you know, without analyzing. Yeah, like the why. And how is this, how does my teaching practice align with my yoga practice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I I also really love this conversation. I think that, you know, we could we could we could talk about all of these things in depth forever. And and yet I, I hope that everyone who's listening has a spark of their own journey, you know, the spark of asking the questions for themselves along the way. One of the things that I love about your new book is that you include these kind of 
question reflection points throughout the book. Yeah. So, um, Giovanna, would you just be able to tell people where they can find your book and where, uh, you know, well, what they can expect while, while reading it? And maybe if you have any other, other, other places where they can interact with your teaching. Sure. Thanks. I, yeah, I do. I, I, I consciously put in questions really in every section of the book so that, because to me, at least when I'm studying, I need to stop and reflect. Like, what is it? How does this feel to me? Can I relate to this? That makes it more effective, I think. And also have the contribution of incredible, I think, 16 different yoga teachers who are really engaged in yoga as mostly as social justice and really wanting to hear their stories and share that. Um, I feel like is really important part of the book. But I uh, people can check out my website, um, jivanaheyman.com. And I have for people who buy the book, I have a whole bunch of practices on the website for free. So you can um like I have classes that are also in the book. I have uh, a chair class and a mat class and a meditation on there that you can take. Um, and, you know, I also lead trainings. I lead accessible yoga training and, you know, I run the nonprofit accessible yoga association. And I would really encourage people to check out our work and we have monthly offerings. We have ambassador programs. Um, we're really there to serve yoga teachers actually, and to help teachers become educated around issues of accessibility and equity in yoga and to support teachers through that journey. Because I think there's, it's a lot, and it's a lot to be a yoga teacher right now. I think there's, uh, it's a big responsibility always, but right now it's like, I think we're learning that yoga needs to be taught in a very safe and equitable way in the, in this cultural context and with respect to the lineages, with respect to the source of the teachings, like you said, in like indigenous practices from South Asia. And in light of our mutual humanity and like treating each other with respect by understanding consent and the impacts of ableism and racism and homophobia and all that. Like there's just a lot to unpack, I think for yoga teachers these days. Um, yeah, absolutely so. <laughs> and, and yeah and everywhere where there are very, are useful tools to go into to those discussions with mindfulness compassion intelligence it's uh, useful and i can really only recommend everyone to seek out more of your teaching and more of your guidance on that i really appreciate that thanks thanks so much for having me i really appreciate it my pleasure Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. 
May you be filled with love. Namaste.